The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome back, everybody, to episode seven of the Ascent of Board Games, our first episode recorded in 2019. Yay, Yay. we're all very excited. We all survived. So far. So week into the new year, and we're all good. Four out of five of us are probably going to be in a meat coma for some portion of today. We went to a Brazilian steakhouse for Joe's birthday yesterday and had a lot of excellent meat on a stick. And so now we're very full. So we're starting off on uneven ground with different starting conditions? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the nice wind conditions, segue, real question. <laughs> that was beautiful. Yes, beautiful. I'm very proud of you. So today's topic is going to be asymmetrical games, and we would tell you what that means, but we're not entirely sure yet, so we're going to be discussing that as a part of the podcast because it's a very broad definition. This is a topic that we have sort of referenced a, a bunch of times, and... We were starting to put together a list of what counts as an asymmetrical game. And we all agreed on Vast and one or two other games. And then we sort of went spreading out in a bunch of different directions and arguing over what constitutes an asymmetrical game. As an experiment this episode, we're going to bring the argument into the actual podcast. Yes, you get to hear in full color all of us telling each other that we're wrong. I should have worn my You Are Wrong t-shirt. Just as some ground rules here, we can go ahead and take out of the argument any many versus few games, which are by definition asymmetrical, but we've already discussed those. Right, exactly. Things like a Fury of Dracula or anything like that. By definition, one side is doing something different than the other. So as a starting point, asymmetrical games are games where the players are doing different things. I mean, is, is the, the sort of broadest definition. My sort of working definition for when I was putting the list together is where players are doing things that are different in the game. Their actions are not the same as the actions all the other players are taking. So mechanically different. Yes. Their mechanics of each player are unique and independent? To some extent. Because, I mean... There are a certain, like, there are a lot of games with what I refer to as variable player powers, where you start it with a character that says, hey, you get extra dice for this thing, or when you take this action, you get this bonus, or whatever it is, because you're still taking all the same actions and scoring points in more or less the same way. You are just better at some aspects of it than others. I don't consider that asymmetrical because you're still all fundamentally using the same mechanics and the same actions to achieve the same goals. So can you give us a prime example of your definition? I don't want to go with vast because vast is, no, I think is like, I, I, asymmetrical in, in every functional way that we yeah. have. I think what's interesting is a negative example, not a positive example, because like a positive example, we'll all just say vast, yeah. right? Like, right. Because that's a dumb example. What's <laughs> one that's like on the line, but you think doesn't quite make it? I think that's more telling than, hey, vast or root or space cadets mm -hmm. is in. Like, okay, sure. Yeah, obviously. Right. What's the one that's like on the line, but you're like, this one is or is not in there. Okay. I would think of Cosmic Encounter. 
See, that's a great one. Yeah. Like, I feel like that one's pure player power in my mind. Yeah. But yet, the the weird, odd sort of sequel, Dune, we included. As, we do. As, and I think and, I think Dune does belong to be there for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. But like, I think that's a great example of where that line is for me personally. So Jay, you're saying that Cosmic Encounter is not a asymmetrical game because even though every player has differing starting powers throughout the course of the game they are all still effectively taking these same actions towards the same goal and they all win the same ways that's the other key aspect there should be or should can be uh varying victory conditions i mean that's one key even if you do the same things if you're aiming at completely different goals how you approach your actions or whatever is going to be completely different Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm So one that I think is interesting, Mike and I talked about this one a fair amount, is like, I feel like Sentinels falls into the asymmetrical bucket. And the reason I feel that way is because while everyone has the same turn structure, everyone's cards are different. There's no sharing of cards. And what everyone's deck is intending to do is different. And it's it's right on the line. Like I could I could buy it would be or would not be, but I think it's, it's interesting because it's really close. You're still dealing with a threat and you're dealing with the environment and the bad guy, but the way you're dealing with it personally is different than the way every other player is dealing with I it. I mean, it's different in a sense, but to me, and I, I haven't played Sentinels in a while, you're still functionally drawing a card, playing a card that is either doing damage or drawing more cards or moving things around. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like mechanically, I mean, the combos are different. Yeah. It doesn't feel to me no, that's fair. particularly asymmetrical. But, but take, for example... Just diving deeper into that for a second, there is the character who's the speedster superhero. Her deck is all about getting as many cards into her discard pile as she can, as quickly as she can. Compare that to another character whose theme of the deck is all about seeding other decks in the game. Those are going to play incredibly differently, creating a asymmetrical experience. The thing that I'm doing is independent and different than the thing that you're doing, even though we have the same goal. So as long as we're on that topic, how do you feel about something like Gloomhaven? Because all of the characters in Gloomhaven play very differently, especially the additional ones you unlock later. Well, Brian, I'm so glad you asked because (laughs) I have thoughts on that. Excellent. I I agree that Gloomhaven is a, a great example of a cooperative asymmetrical experience. I think with a cooperative game, the asymmetrical experience is going to be inherently different than a competitive asymmetrical game. Um, I mean, Gloomhaven, you're absolutely right. Those characters all play incredibly differently, and that creates that unique experience. Now, again, just like I was saying about Sentinels, they're still all functionally making attacks, doing damage, moving monsters around, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess, a more familiar to me example of what you're talking about with Sentinels. Absolutely. And, and the experience of playing a sorcerer versus the defender, both of those are in the base set. The sorcerer with tiny number of cards, but really uh, powerful spell damage. Weaver, spell weaver, yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, but the Spellweaver is all about permanently losing her cards until she summons them all back with one of her more powerful Mm -hmm. cards. Whereas the Defender character is all about just holding on to those cards for as long as he possibly can so that he can make it to the end. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think it comes down to the question of, like, hey, is Hero Quest an asymmetrical game? 
sure, like Gloomhaven's the omega of that, but it is definitely in that vein, mm-hmm. right? It's like, hey, is a is Descent an asymmetrical game? Is, and Descent's maybe well, a bad yeah. example because Descent is kind One of many largely here. samey. That actually, you found the line for me because comparing Gloomhaven to Descent, I mean, I'd say Descent is absolutely not an asymmetrical game because even with the different powers of the characters, the thing that you are doing is still just picking up and rolling dice, which that mechanic in of itself can only be so different. Right. And so like in in games where you're doing like adventure games or dungeon crawl games where people are slightly different, they're all working towards the same goal, right? Like it, those are on the line in my mind, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's clearly a spectrum going there because you know, really you do get elaborate character powers, but also the types of powers you have access to over time are different. Right, because like when Mike says, hey, Gloomhaven's one, I turn around and say, okay, well, is Kingdom Death one then? And it, it feels like obviously no in my mind. Right. But like, but why, well, why are those? <laughs> I do agree. I think Kingdom mm-hmm. Death definitely not one. But like, why is Gloomhaven one? Why is Kingdom Death not one? Right, because they're in my mind as games relatively close to each other in terms of overall experience yeah i think the thing that makes gloomhaven closer to asymmetrical for me is the fact that every class has a completely different and unique set of cards that work together in ways that just have no resemblance to what the other classes are doing so like sentinels yeah, yeah, and that's and that's kind of exactly, what I'm exactly. Like, High five. Like, like I said, you know, I'm willing to accept that Sentinels might be because I haven't played it. No, as no, much. no, that's fair. Like, like what you yeah. described was is functionally mm-hmm. why Mike and I brought up Sentinels. Okay, right? I like, will, I will <laughs> consider myself convinced. No, no, that's I mean that's fair. Like, you, and you haven't played as much as we have, right? Mm-hmm. So like, it's it's harder to to feel it, right? Because like everything does feel really different. But like, I wouldn't know how to feel about Gloomhaven if I hadn't played like right. hundred billion hours of it, right? So like, so worth it. Joe, just a thought exercise for you is compare something like. Sentinels to Aeon's End. I mean, those are very similar games, but I would argue, and I think I think I know what you're going to say, is that Aeon's End is definitely not an asymmetrical game. Yeah, and I think the in my mind, like the reason Aeon's End is an asymmetrical game is because you're all drawing from the same set of resources. And the differences in how your character behave are as you progress your decks over the course of the game. You start really similar. Maybe, maybe a better way to put it is this. Any two players could build the exact same deck that would only be different. The only difference would be their starting cards and their unique power. Yeah, if, if the only difference is your starting condition, that's not really right. asymmetry. Right. So are we trying to draw the line at the character that you're playing, whatever the game might be, is purpose-built for specific types of actions, despite the fact that the actions might be the same for all the characters, right? I'm doing an attack action. I'm doing a, a defend action. But my character is built in a very different way. And it sounds like we're drawing the line where it's this character was built in a way to do a certain thing as opposed to something like Aeon's and we're like, I'm just grabbing cards and adding to it. Kind of like with Kingdom Death, you've all functionally start as blanks, right? You're, you're nothing. You're, you literally have the same equipment, the same skills, same abilities. Over time, you might develop different ones, but those characters as they were created in the game from the beginning were not uniquely created to do certain and, things. And they could, in theory, all have developed the same way. Exactly. If you make all the same choices and random events don't kill you gratuitously. I think I might have gotten this. I'm, okay. I think I've narrowed it down to a, a single sentence for this aspect uh, of ooh, asymmetry. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm terrified. All right, I'm going to be definitive here, guys. <laughs> I'm terrified. Joe, are you trying to say that in your mind, in an asymmetrical game, each player has a unique set of resources at their disposal that is not shared among others even if they operate with a shared set of mechanics. 
I don't know if I want to be that prescriptive. I think that is one way in which a game can be asymmetrical. Or one piece of evidence that a game is asymmetrical. I mean, take, again, this is going to be going to, I think, a quintessential representation of this, but XCOM, where every player has a unique set of resources that they're operating with during the course of the game. Yeah, but like I said before, I think XCOM is is a boring discussion point because it is obviously asymmetrical. Because like XCOM, I think we can all agree is asymmetrical because everyone is literally doing a different thing. Like when you think about like Space Cadets as an example, every player is literally physically doing a different thing. Like one person is playing Crokinole, one person is playing Pipe Dream, one person is uh, making poker hands, one person is um, doing a memory game, one person mm-hmm. is doing like a building a tile matching thing. Like everyone's doing like physically different actions. I think it's, it's a quintessential actually example of, hey, I'm as a player doing physically different things. And I think in XCOM, while you're not doing physically different things, you're doing mentally different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're each working with a different type of resource that you're building up. I'm doing science cards. You're doing satellites or whatever it is. So I think that is certainly a way to define games that are asymmetrical. So Joe, you brought up Space Cadets. What are your thoughts on Captain Sonar? Yeah, Captain Sonar is interesting because it's inside of each team it's asymmetric. Both teams are doing the same thing. Yeah, the the teams are symmetrical. It is functionally two people playing XCOM against each other in a lot of (laughs) ways. Because you get two completely different teams who are all doing very different stuff doing the same thing to each other. Well, so it's interesting, right? It's like the game says it plays from two to eight. And I think if you played it at the two level, like one person versus another person, it's not asymmetrical. Both players are are doing doing the exact same thing. It only becomes asymmetric when you add more players. Mm -hmm. And now all the players inside of a team are doing different things. Mm -hmm. But both sides are are doing literally the exact same thing. Yep, as which a team. Is, it's fascinating. Like I think that one's really on the line. So here's an interesting take that would uh, expand that. Memoir 44, if played with the Overlord rules, I don't know if any of you have done that. Mm-hmm. I have not. The way the Overlord works is that basically all cards are held by the overall commander. Mm-hmm. He then just kind of looks at the battlefield and hands two cards to his subordinates one to each of his subordinates and then he can talk to one of them the other can then do whatever the hell he wants to do that's actually pretty that sounds interesting (laughs) that sounds interesting. sorry commander you can only be at one place at one time you can only suggest and talk with one at a time to suggest what cards might be coming up or you know if they're going to get back up for to support what they're going to do the other one's just going to do something like okay cool my commander has given me this card and no other direction let's see i assume he wants me to attack with all all forces that's another weird edge case. Functionally, all the commander is doing is overviewing the battlefield and giving. Yes. And choosing which cards and which people activate. Right. I mean, that sounds spot on with what the captain of the submarine and Captain Sonar is doing. It's like, mechanically, they're not doing anything, but making sure that all the other players are doing their job? Well, the more we talk about it, the more I feel like Captain Sonar is kind of not an asymmetric game, because... Both sides are... The fact that it can be played two players, when you reduce it down to the two-player scope, it is clearly not an asymmetric game. Like, there's no question, right? Like, both sides are just literally doing the exact same thing. It only has hints of asymmetry when you add in more players, and those players inside of their teams are doing different things, but the overall objective and the overall goal, right, is still the same. And like, hey, if I add two more players, one on each side, those two players are doing the same thing as each other. They're just doing a different thing than the other person on their team. So that also comes into another of those interesting corner cases, which is Ladies and Gentlemen. A very similar game, and yet so So different. different. (laughs) 
for those of you that don't know, Ladies and Gentlemen is a game that is played on as teams of two. One person is a lady, one person is a gentleman, and the gentleman's job is to make money. Sure, do they do things. Don't worry about it. It's not the important. The lady's job is to spend the money. The lady's job is to win the game. The lady's <laughs> job is to look good. But unlike Captain Sonar, ladies and gentlemen cannot be played with, I'd say, less than four players. True. So is that an asymmetrical game? It is in that way very similar to Captain Sonar because both players on a team are doing different things, but all the teams have people in the same roles. If we're saying Captain Sonar isn't, and I think I agree with you, Joe, then I would say that, ladies and gentlemen, is also not asymmetrical. I was honestly convinced Captain Sonar was asymmetrical until we talked about it. <laughs> like, I changed my mind while we were talking about it because of because it can be played two players, I think, mm-hmm. is really what it comes down to. But no one plays it two players. I know. Why would you ever do that? So well, it I, seems I, like I a suboptimal it, option. Suboptimal. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know. It's still on the line for me, for sure, but I feel like it's kind of not. I mean, you say that, Frank. I'm going to segue right into a new topic here. People can play Dune with less than six people. Those people are wrong. But like, even if you do, Dune is both variable starting positions and also variable player powers and also, for some factions, variable win conditions. Every faction does have a separate win condition. Some of them are, if no one else has won <laughs> yeah. by the end of the game, you win. Yep. But Dune is one that I, I kind of want it to be asymmetrical but I don't think it is. It's really on the line I agree. Because from a mechanical standpoint everybody's doing the same thing. You have your variable powers that will let you do it. Everybody is in most cases winning the same way. Being part of an alliance that controls the right number of victory locations. Sieges. But it feels very asymmetrical because the game is so tight that those little differences seem huge. In the context of the game. It's the fact that the player powers are so wound into the structure of the game that I'd say it is asymmetrical. Because, you know, the Atreides only being able to look at cards Mm -hmm. and knowing what the cards are, there are natural alliances that tend to form because of, you know, how the player powers merge easily. Emperor and the Navigator tend to team up almost all the time. Because they have all the money. Yes, and... I think that that's because of the structure of the player powers and just how well they're created wind through all the game that it is asymmetric. And yeah, if you're playing the Bene Gesserit, you're not going to be doing the same thing at all you're doing if you're an emperor. You and your one unit? Yeah. <laughs> and even the, ga- the game space is similar. I mean, the game space is identical, but the player powers are created in such a way that how you interact with that game space is totally different. You exploit different parts of it. I think the thing that, for me, makes it asymmetrical, I think the thing Frank brought up, which is like, hey, during Dune, there's a card draft. And during the card draft, only one player ever has the opportunity to look at the card before it's drafted. And I feel like that's the point where it's like, hey, there's a fundamental step in the card draft where it's like now the person who gets to look at the card looks at the card but no one else does and then you bid on it and like i feel like that's the point where if it is asymmetrical that's where that's it where it becomes in. that's where it becomes that's where it passes the line i think it's hyper on the line for sure i think dune is a great example of how starting powers and victory conditions and even like positioning on the board can lead to emergent gameplay that is asymmetrical within a game like again going back to what we discussed earlier a game that has purely starting powers that are varying does not necessarily lead to asymmetrical gameplay 
But I think maybe some combination of those three things could cause asymmetrical gameplay to occur within a game. That's an interesting discussion. It's like, hey, is Dune's asymmetry emergent as opposed to like vast where it's designed? I worry That's a little bit about talking about how as you go away from starting conditions, it becomes more asymmetrical because then you get to a thing like pick talisman or any of those kind of games. If you have one guy who has a couple lucky turns and winds up with a lot of more powerful movement or combat abilities, they're going to be playing the game differently because they have the access to go into more difficult regions and, and do harder stuff. As a result of what's happened during the game, I don't think that makes it an asymmetrical game. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Talisman is. But I think the thing that makes Dune an asymmetrical game compared to Talisman, which is a weird comparison. Yes. I never thought I'd be comparing those two games. Is that, like, the player powers don't vary. Like, in Talisman, you get more player power by drawing cards that do good things, right? Mm -hmm. But in Dune, you functionally don't, right? You you are what you is. You are what you are from the start. It doesn't really change. I think that's the part that if Dune is asymmetrical and the asymmetry is emergent, which I think it might be. I I don't think it was designed intentionally for asymmetry, but it it might have... I feel like it really was. Sure. Well, it's like, like but it has emergent asymmetry as opposed to like, specific like like vast where it's like well now everyone is just literally playing a different Mm -hmm. game this goes back to what i was saying like just having varying powers that you get throughout the game without having varying victory conditions like you are all still heading towards the same point so maybe like i said it's some combination of those things that causes asymmetry but you could take that to an extreme every game with luck has asymmetry sure so that that just goes into i I don't think that's a a productive line of argument i have a feeling that for for most of us here asymmetry is going to be like pornography in that we don't know how to define it but we know what it is when we see it (laughs) Um, another comparison i never thought i'd hear (laughs) i'm just saying it's an excellent quote though because some of this stuff is like well hey space cadets is asymmetrical yes yes it definitely is define to me the exact reasons why it is Uh, (laughs) that's why we have this episode it is when i see it well, and I think that, I mean, we can all agree that XCOM, Vast, Root, Space Cadets... I think Root's closer to the line than yeah, all the other ones you sure, examined. Sure, but we can all look at these games and say, yes, these are asymmetrical. But I think that is what this conversation is doing, is defining that, okay, but why? Which is a good conversation to have. And we're not the only ones who are struggling with this definition. Because when I was looking through uh, Port Game Geek for, uh, well, for all of the things that we were talking about today... There's no game mechanic listing for asymmetric. Because <laughs> it's not really a mechanic. Well, it's just sort of a But they have things for adjective. like variable powers and things like all the other things that we're talking about around this when we're trying to define it. Right. It doesn't show up in any of them. Like, I, I wonder if they, that was a discussion they had. Like, I don't know how Board Game Geek comes up with those um, categories, but I'd be curious to see if there was just like, just throw up their hands like we're not going to try. So every two-player war game with an attack and defender role is asymmetric. That's why I brought my favorite example of that, which is Star Wars Rebellion. Before we get onto that, I I want to actually go into something that Frank mentioned there. So from a design standpoint, there are an awful lot of two-player games that are asymmetrical because I think from a design standpoint, that is much easier. Sure. You know, if you have one person who's trying to commit a crime and one person who's trying to prevent it. If you have one person who's trying to conquer a place and one person who's trying to keep it from being conquered. Those are pretty straightforward. They're mechanically easy to balance. Cooperative games are comparatively easy, which is why you get things like Space Cadets and XCOM. Because if all the players are doing different things, but they're all working towards the same goal, it doesn't necessarily have to be balanced to be effective. I think when you get a multiplayer game that is truly 
asymmetrical. That's what makes Vast so impressive to me, is that you have functionally four to six or seven, I don't know how many expansions are out there now, you have a bunch of different people doing completely different things that still interact with each other in meaningful ways. It is a masterpiece of game design. It's in the competitive multiplayer space that asymmetrical games get really interesting. I mean, like, in a lot of ways, the reason this episode even exists is because of Vast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's a category we would have thought of if Vast didn't no. exist. But, like, I think Vast kind of begs the question of, like, what other games are like me in that people are just doing different things. And Vast mm-hmm. is vastly, vastly <laughs> asymmetric. Yeah. It is one extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah, in a total, total yeah. bucket of crazy. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. yes. I have no idea how they designed that game. Like, but if, it, if we're going to have conversations works. about the line, like if I'm standing on the line, I can't even see Vast. <laughs> yeah, it's way out there. It's the mountain that's off in the distance. Yeah. And like, isn't it fascinating that their follow-up game to Vast Root is not as asymmetrical? Like, I agree. That is really interesting because why exactly is that well it's a different designer too clearly design is influenced by cuba libre he does things things like john and company which i'm really interested in looking at now that's sierra madre games so i'm all about that (laughs) yeah they are the company that did high frontier oh god I need a hyper-realistic space exploration game in my life. Jeez, Designed by a rocket I really don't. <laughs> that game is, I love that game so much, and it's, it's so dumb. It's the dumbest game I've ever played. And yet, it's also the smartest it's, game I've ever played. It's way smarter than I am. It makes me feel real dumb. But also, like, its mechanics are stupid. Just, just They're just stupid. Or, like, they're, they're correct. In a way that is not appropriate for a board game, they are correct. Yes, this is not a board game. This is a board simulation. Yes, yes. for sure. Oh yeah, Phil Eklund is amazing. Oh, Another amazing him. designer. Oh, I love the game. But yeah, his games are sometimes not games. They're, they're not actually meant for humans. To they're play. simulations. They're definitely they're, simulations. Yeah. And the reason you can tell that that game is really a simulation is the rules for how you win are total trash in that game. Like they're no. really stupid. And so it's like the last time Mike and I played, we both agreed like, hey, Mike, I'm going to go accomplish this thing. Like, like, cool, I'm going to go accomplish this thing. Like, I want to get to Pluto. We've, we've That's my only goal. Life. Like, who cares yes. about like winning? <laughs> Honestly, the winning rules for that game are kind of nonsense in general. So like, really, it's just like go pick a thing and try to accomplish it. It's the game of getting achievements. Is what you're Pretty saying. Much. As a side tangent, I need to get you to play Leaving Earth, which is High Frontier with more game and less orbital mechanics. I like that setting a lot. But only if we can bring our High Frontier map along with us. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, cool. Back on to uh, right. asymmetry. Um, you were going to talk about Star Wars Rebellion, which is a two, two, functionally two player, a two-player two player game. It is a two-player game. Yeah. In two-player game, right? It's like I, I think Star Wars is my favorite example of every war game ever, functionally, because like it has a lot of things going for it, right? Like it's functionally hide and seek, the board game. Because as the Rebellion, you are somewhere hidden on the board. And as the Empire, if you find the Rebel base and take it, which is really easy, if you find where it is, you win. And the Rebels are trying to kind of like slow the Emperor down a little bit. But really, they're just trying to hide and like win over the popular vote function to them. I, I think it's clearly asymmetrical. But like you said, almost every war game in existence is asymmetrical and it's functionally a war game. So I think we can make a logic statement here that's like, hey, no, 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 we can't. I'm trying to think. Mike how is incapable of making my, logical statements. But like, are two-player games by definition asymmetrical? No, no. They're yes. definitely no. not. No. Right? Like, they're definitely not. So, really, with war games, you traditionally have an attacker defender role. Yep. 
So that's different victory conditions. Sure. Attacker wants to take the thing. Defender wants to keep the thing. Plus you get different starting conditions. I mean, yeah. you get different numbers of units. The defenders have fortifications. So Frank, would you say that both players have a unique set of resources that they can spend throughout the game? Absolutely. Awesome. Because you have different starting unit combinations. Mm-hmm. While we were doing some of the historical research, the oldest example of that kind of thing we came up with. Hineftafel. Basically, there is a whole series of games that were throughout the Celtic and Norse and Western Russia and even into Nepal. Basically, games where you had a small number of pieces in the middle for one player and a large number of pieces for the other player surrounding them. And the small number of pieces had to get a particular piece out and away from the invading army. It's been played for thousands of years, and it's basically the oldest type of asymmetrical game that we could find. The fascinating thing about it is we're doing research on it. There are discussions about how it's not balanced, and <laughs> yes. it's like... And more importantly, there were discussions on how it was not balanced in, like, the 5th century. Right, and part of it was due to a mistranslation of the rules. Yeah, Theoretically, that's Theor- the theory, right? Like, who knows, right? Like, it's fascinating. I just really love the idea of somebody uncovering an ancient Norse runestone, which is basically somebody complaining about how the invading army is OP, you know, (laughs) and then somebody finds another stone that is the errata for the latest edition of Neftafel. Well, actually, imbalance, I mean, you get some asymmetry by the fact that one player goes first. Mm -hmm. Even Go assigns points to the player who goes second. And there are arguments over how many points that should be. So even Go, which is very symmetrical natively, we don't know. We also took a look at uh, Fox and Hounds, which is sort of a similar offshoot of the Toffle games in which you have a fox that is surrounded by hounds or a goose that is surrounded by wolves or whatever it might be. And there's a whole Asian tradition there, goats and tigers. Oh, some of those might actually be older than Hen of Toffle. Um, it's really hard to say because the records are kind of slack on that. And especially they see, they've seen cases of stone mar- or basically etched into stone that look like boards for one of the lions and tigers game. So we don't know how old some of those are. So as long as we're kind of over our initial discussion, which is basically, we don't know, (laughs) maybe we can start talking about some specific examples that we wanted to get into and and see what we think about their level of symmetry or lack thereof. Yeah, I think we should talk about uh, copyright infringement the game next. (laughs) (laughs) You could never release that game in modern times because they'd be like, yeah, no, get sued. What is even going on right now? But like, no, nah, the 70s were a magical time. Yes, where it was, it was a wild and free period. You could have violated all the copyright infringement you ever wanted. Where IP didn't exist, apparently. Apparently. Good Lord. No, yeah. it's like board games. Who cares about that? Nobody buys those things. So just to clarify. Yeah, tell, tell us what we're talking about here. We are talking about Quest of the Magic Ring, 1975, Land of Legend, designer Wendell L. Hill. I do have a copy of this. It's uh, I had a copy of this when I was young. I think bought from a relative from like the Miles Kimball catalog, one of those classic mail order kind of. The game is definitely not based on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Ring. It says no, so. It's, it's, it's not based on it. It is directly <laughs> taken from it. Ripped Stolen. hole and bleeding. And uh, it does have a disclaimer saying that the characters are inspired by, but that really J.R.R. Tolkien and his heirs do not uh, have any kind of... There's a character of... literally named Sauron in the game, yes? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's... I'm just... I'm out. Yep. I just... Like, let me just but, sue but, but everyone. It's a fine old traditional family name. Yeah. <laughs> but we do have the Grey Wizard and the White Wizard. So right. no, no Gandalf. No Gandalf. Technically, uh, technically this no is, Gandalf. This is clearly a different 
you have to take the ring to the crack of fire, which five-year-old me is just going. (laughs) (laughs) The game's interesting, though. Uh, When you actually play with a full seven players, you get, first of all, three factions. You get the traditional Fellowship of the Ring or whatever, the the arrangement of the people that are holding the jewelry (laughs) versus the guy in the White Tower and the guy in the Dark Tower. Sauron has both orcs and uh, ring race that he can use to harass the and chase down the ring. He has to get the ring back to the tower. Same thing, the white wizard is Saruman, mm-hmm. is basically trying to get the ring to his tower. He has a couple of orcs as well. Then you get two groups that are uh, basically... Gondor and Rohan, basically. Gondor and Rohan, yeah. And then you get the Riders of the Mark, who have just units that they can use to generally take on the orcs. So how do those players win? Right, like, do they win if they win the with, Fellowship wins? They win okay. with the Fellowship, yeah. So, so three it's factions. sort of a team and two individual wizards. Correct. Hmm. Do the individual wizards end up fighting with each other as well as with the... Oh, uh, there are actually no pawns for Sauron or uh, Saruman. Oh, interesting. But, I mean, can their orcs fight each other? Would they? Do they? No. Okay. Uh, I don't even think they're allowed to fight each other. Okay. The ring race are not allowed to attack armies. They're only allowed to attack the Fellowship and harass the Fellowship. Aragorn, of course, has to go and get his sword reforged. Gandalf can become the White Wizard by sacrificing himself with Moria. Sounds really familiar. I think they should write a book about this, maybe. Can you play with less than three players? You could play with two. In which case, you don't get the three-faction thing with uh, Saruman and Sauron. But yeah, surprisingly for breaking up the players for such a simple... I mean, it is functionally really just a roll and move. That's the weird part, is it's such a... a It's so weird that it's a roll and move. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I can't... It was the 70s, so... Such a complicated, unusual game. It's, yeah. So, we should talk at least a little bit more about Dune. It was released in 1979 by Avalon Hill, designed by Bill Eberly, Jat Kittridge, and Peter Olatka. I'm awful at names, really bad. And obviously, you know, we, we've touched on it some. What is this game tribute? I've never heard of that. Yeah, so when I was looking into it, apparently originally it was designed as a, a Roman theme. The Dune thing was actually surprisingly kind of tacked on at the last that minute. That seems so weird because it's crazy? so <laughs> integral to the game. This was actually re-released a few years back as Rex, yep. reskinned mm-hmm. to yes. the Fantasy Flight Space Empire thing, and it's just literally the I same. I don't game. know how you could take it away from Dune because the mechanics fit so perfectly with the stories of the book. Yeah, like we, I've looked through the copy of Rex. A friend of mine has it, and I was like, oh yeah. This is just Dune, like just a literally just Dune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They even have like the atomics that blow up a section of the map. Like it's literally <laughs> the exact game. And it is a tremendously fun game to play. It is certainly a product of its era. The art's um, amazing. The, the art is amazing in many different ways. <laughs> it feels like an Eon game almost. Well, I mean, it is an Eon game. The designers are leisure pastimes. They did all the Eon games. Oh, okay. Well, that would explain why it feels that way. <laughs> For those of you who haven't played or seen Dune or Rex, the main victory condition is there are five strongholds on the map. And if you and or your allies control a certain number of them at the end of a turn, then you will win alliances can only be made and broken during specific sort of random events that happen. So it is certainly possible that you'll be in the middle of a game going on and the opportunity to make an alliance comes up and you look at another player and say, hey, between us, we control enough to win. Let's ally. Boom, you win the game. So there is sort of a weird, potentially anticlimactic thing there. But the sort of machinations between the different factions is 
super fascinating. It should really only be played with six. Yes. I just had an idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is really an asymmetrical game, but it leads to something we can talk about. What I'm talking about here is Diplomacy. Mm. Alan Kalhammer originally released in 1959. <laughs> Avalon Hill is the main listed publisher. I know they have it now, but no. I think Games Research was the original. Probably Games Research, yeah. yeah. Diplomacy is not, by almost any of the metrics we've used so far, an asymmetrical game. Everybody has armies and fleets, and they're ordering their stuff in the same way, and they are of equal strength and that kind of thing. And roughly the same number. Roughly the same number. Russia has four, everybody else has three. Britain has one less army and one more fleet, but they're functionally almost exactly the same. The thing that makes it interesting and I think worth discussing here is that even though the numbers are pretty even, the layout and the geography of the board makes some players significantly stronger than others. This is a fascinating specimen of not unique powers, not unique victory conditions, but positioning on the board. Right. So in upper level competitive play, Italy is generally considered the weakest power in the game. And it has the same number of units as everybody else. It's just in a bad position. It doesn't really have any natural allies, and it's difficult for it to expand. So it is not asymmetrical in the sense that everybody's starting from more or less the same point. But the strengths and weaknesses, and more importantly, the perceived strength and weakness of the various players, is fundamental to how you play the game. It's a game that I think gets a lot of its love and hatred, depending on what side of the coin you fall on for diplomacy, so much from hatred. the ability to read other players and figure out who you can convince to help you and who you can paint as a threat, because there's no luck in the game. It's all, you know, everybody writes down their orders and what you do is what you get. But I think that's interesting because it's not asymmetrical, but it really is. I think that Dune inherits a lot of that. Yeah, that's actually a good example, because although the starting positions in Dune are a lot less even, it's still a matter of who do you team up with, who do you believe, who do you trust. I mean, my gut feeling is I, I look at a game like Diplomacy and I say, no, that's that's not asymmetrical. But again, this goes back to the whole why question. Yeah, exactly. Because in theory, everybody's even rushes a little bit better because they start with more. But because they start with more, they are perceived as an enemy by more people. That's where you get the social element of what is balanced. For a long time, I kind of felt that that could be an excuse for lazy game design. It's like, well, yeah, this guy's more powerful than the others, but that just means everybody should pick on him more. But it sort of works as long as everybody has the the knowledge of the game state to act on that appropriately. I don't really have a point. I just thought it was interesting <laughs> no, but and like worth it's discussing. An, yeah. It's an interesting introspection. And yeah, I mean, I think personally it falls on the it is not an asymmetrical game side of my line. In like you said, even comparing it to Dune, which has a lot of similar qualities, I think that varying starting powers is gonna push Dune a little bit over the line on my book. Okay. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, it's interesting that the position can make such a difference in the way the game plays out, and mm-hmm. it does kind of lead the game to go certain ways but I don't think it falls into what I would consider asymmetric. Yeah, it's not asymmetric by the rules. Mm. It's asymmetric by the way it tends to be played. Yeah. And I don't know what to say. It feels asymmetric to me but certainly fails our test. Yeah. Like I say, it's, it's not asymmetrical according to any of the rules. It just kind of plays out that way. One game that I wanted to talk about, this is a game I really, really want to like. Oh, it's a hard And I like conceptually, but it is physically unplayable by humans. And that is The Artifact. 
It was originally released in 2001 by Print and Play Productions. It was by Phil and Matt Eklund. It got a big fancy Kickstarter re-release a few years back from Sierra Madre. There was a two-player space tactical combat game back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And somebody had a cool idea of taking four copies of this and mashing it together and having different people play on their own personal map with a GM sort of going around and telling them what they see. I may see Jason's guy at the end of the hall. And then started giving them different abilities and different powers and different goals. And the end result is what is called Last Frontier, the artifact. So the premise is that there is this super powerful alien artifact of unknown origin and purpose that has been discovered on this remote space station. And you've got a bunch of different folks who are vying for control of it in some fashion. You've got the scientists who discovered the artifact. You've got some space pirates. You have some sort of alien entity, which could be a variety of different alien types, including the artifact itself being sentient. And you've got some people from the phone company who may actually be undercover detectives or government agents or just actually guys who are there to fix the phones and have no idea what the hell is going on. So basically, each of you gets a different faction sheet. You pick your starting equipment, you pick your actual goals and your form, and then you each start exploring the ship to try and figure out where the other people are, what they're trying to do, and how to accomplish your mission. I love that idea. This needs to be a multiplayer computer or smartphone app because I have tried to run this as a physical game once, and as the GM, there is just way too much to keep track of because literally someone takes a turn they move a thing and then i have to either remember where all of everyone else's pieces are or go around and check all the maps and tell them if they notice something and it's just it's a super cool concept that you can't actually be played the by thing that's beings. fascinating is like i was a computer faction when we played it i was the ship computer right uh, and so like i got to decide if hacking attempts happened or not but only one of the computer versions gets to make those decisions and so every time a hacking attempt would happen brian would be like okay cool i, I will come back something. to you in a minute and then like he can't make it clear that he's finding out if the hacking attempt happens from someone else at the table he's he has to hide that but the the process of having to hide that is so complicated it's like i have to go around the table and talk to everyone right just making some stuff up that's nonsense and then, yeah it's uh, total nonsense it would be fantastic as a multiplayer PC or or app game, but uh, I, I don't think it's a viable option as a board game. Play, play by mail or play by forum works. I want to try this sometime because really it's like a board game version of a LARP. And I've got a lot of experience running LARPs. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you play a LARP, it's like doing a 40-player version of the artifact. <laughs> Literally, we've had 40 mm -hmm. people running around, teams of you know, three GMs, mm -hmm. uh, trying to deal with the keep and, and then keep all the GMs in sync so that we're able to do that. And uh, this is just a lot more rules. I actually feel like you could probably do this using something like Vassal, yeah. Like that, where everybody is physically in a different location yep. and the GM can just private message people, you know, as it goes. But I think as a people gathered around a table playing a board game, it just it just can't work. It for doesn't, me. Make, doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Even like when you think about like LARPs, right? There's a reason you host LARPs in multiple rooms spread out around a house, right? It's like so they, Totally. So there's some privacy. You just can't play this game all sitting around a table. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I'll say that with a Kickstarter reprint, the components are great. Uh, the maps and everything are gorgeous, and they've done everything they can to make it playable by humans, but I think the design of the game just sort of prevents that. I love literally everything that you said about that description. Like, that I know, sounds amazing. It sounds like a perfect game. But also, sounds right on par for Sierra Madre game. <laughs> 
it. Yeah, it's a little too complex for its own good, I think, with the rules density. Even with the print-and-play version, um, they trimmed down. The original version was much harder to deal with because yeah. your rules were spread out over three different books. Basically, the real, the rules in the Sierra Madre version said, oh, use these rules, but don't use these rules from the original rule book. And that's all it said. <laughs> Figure it out. So the next thing we're going to talk about is Chaos of the Old World, released in 2009, a day that will go down in infamy, <laughs> published by Fantasy Flight, uh, designed by Eric Lang, and in Chaos of the Old World, which is a game that I loathe in every possible way, <laughs> um, you play one of the Chaos Gods, and you attempt to gain ground, and there's two ways you can win. You can either amass 50 victory points each faction gets victory points for doing different things or they each have a separate way that they can advance uh, by their threat dials which is they do specific things to advance their threat dials and once their threat dials get to a certain position they win and the number of advancements you need for each faction is different to win and this is to be clear the chaos gods from the warhammer fantasy universe same as the ones in the Warhammer and yes, 40k Jason, universe. you're correct chaos uh, cthulhu worlds is functioning exactly this game i want to know why joe hates it so much uh, he's played it with certain friends that oh, should not oh, be played oh. with. <laughs> That's a lot of games. No, honestly, I think the reason I don't like it is because for some reason it has a lot of asymmetrical components and I don't like the way those asymmetrical components interact with the other players. I just don't enjoy it. In Vast, everyone's doing different things, but they're doing things that are so different that you can't even look at them. It's like a blinding star. It's like, I can't even look over there at what you're doing. It looks like total nonsense. I'm just going <laughs> to ignore it. Why are you moving those cubes? <laughs> in Chaos in the Old World, it looks like you could potentially understand what the other players are trying to do and make decisions based on that. And I think if you played enough, you could, but like you can't initially, <laughs> right? And so like when I started, when I played the first couple of times, I'd be like, well, it seems like I should be able to kind of watch and figure out what everyone's doing. And you can't because it's, it's actually kind of, it's a lot more vast like in its play than it looks like it is, right? Because like, like vast is obviously different. Kiss in the old world is different but it's not obvious that it's different and so because of that the game actually frustrates me a lot as a human being <laughs> like i don't like it i just don't like the game I, i'm not saying it's a bad game i think it's actually i think it's a really good game i just really dislike it as a human I, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm it's not curious. a game for me i'm curious have you tried playing it since you have played vast uh no i don't think so I think that might make a change to the way you perceive it. I might have learned some lessons. Uh, if I was going to play this, I would play Cthulhu Worlds instead because Mike has invested so much money in that game. I don't know how I couldn't. <laughs> that was one of my first Kickstarters. Cthulhu Wars is more <clears throat> transparent in how it approaches things. With Chaos in the Old World, it has those action decks that are extremely dense in how many extra rules they bring to the table for yeah. each faction. Cthulhu Wars kind of dismisses that with a board of set powers. Oh, that's the spell open book? Start. Yeah. yeah, the spell book. I feel like Cthulhu Wars is a reskinning and re-release of Chaos in the Old World that updates its gameplay with some modern innovations and just transparency like transparency definitely yeah yeah and actually that might be one of the things i dislike the most about chaos in the old world is there's not a lot of transparency in that game and like the first time you play it you're gonna get surprised in a not fun way <laughs> lots and lots because you're like oh surprise i have this ability to do this thing that screws over your plans i'm like why what so to play devil's advocate here how is that different from your first play of vast <laughs> no, no, that's totally fair. Which, last time I checked, you love. No, I do love Vast. That's a good question. Let me think about it some.
It certainly might be some of like the people I played the first that experience with. That can certainly do it to. That can certainly ruin games. It could have been some of that. That's how I ruined Diplomacy for John Richardson. His That's first true. game that was with me. Absolutely. John Richardson will never play that game again. And for it, you are still his friend. Barely. I almost ruined their friendship. I'm not kidding. It was a near thing. Touch and go at that yeah. point. Diplomacy ruining friendship since 1959. So yeah, we're firmly on the fence of uh, asymmetric for Chaos in the Old World. I feel like it's asymmetric because, I mean, even though mechanically you're still moving dudes on a map and taking over spaces, the way you're doing it and the way you're scoring from it is so very different. Yeah, yeah the way you yeah. earn victory points for every faction is different. The way you advance yeah. your ruinous power dial is different. And I think that's even more true for Cthulhu Wars. The next game that we're going to talk about is Sentinels of the Multiverse, which actually first came out as a Kickstarter in 2011 from Greater Than Games. This game was designed by Christopher Bedell, Adam Rabataro, and Paul Bender. And if you haven't figured it out, it's probably one of my favorite games of all time. I mean, what haven't we said about this game already? Each player has a deck that represents their superhero. They work together to take out a supervillain who's got their own deck that operates on its own. And they are doing it in an environment that may be with them, against them, totally random. That has its own deck. Has a lot its of own cards deck. involved in this game. So uh, many cards. Each deck plays differently using the same set of mechanics of play a card, use a printed power, and then draw a card. It's just such a tight and great game, and so much theme. It is just dripping with theme. It's great. Yeah, and this is one that, you know, per our earlier conversations, I started out not thinking of as asymmetrical, but I have been won over by Joe and Mike's eloquent arguments. Hooray! Yeah, so, it, you know, the things that make it asymmetrical, right, is like every player deck is very different, has different goals in terms of how they gain power and transmit that power both into attacks and also to assist their other enemies and you you just make lots of different decisions based on the person that you're playing and yeah it's the same game space it's just how you explore that game space is very (coughs) different it's also just amazing the variability (coughs) they've gotten out of that mechanic because they've got 20 some odd character decks and every single one of them are different not all of them are winners but (laughs) definitely just a vast space to explore there The next game we're going to talk about is Space Cadets, released in 2012 by Stronghold Games, designed by Jeff Engelstein, Brian Engelstein, and Sidney Engelstein. I believe those are Jeff's son and daughter. I know one of them is kids. I think both of them are his kids. Seems plausible. And you are a group of explorers uh, taking a new spaceship out to uh, do a specific mission. The game comes with half a dozen missions that you can try to accomplish, and you do that by attacking enemies and flying your ship around. The fun part is that... That each of you is kind of playing a different game. So like as the helmsman, you are playing down cards which kind of direct and turn your ship as appropriate. As the weapons officer, you're playing a game of shuffleboard, trying to get your disc at the right position on this, this long strip so that you can do damage. As the shields officer, you're trying to like make poker hands and also be concerned about the facing of the shielding because if you get attacked, you get attacked from a direction and it affects your shielding. And as the sensors officer, you have a bag of shapes, but you reach into a bag blind and you have an example of the shape you want to find in front of you and you have to find it by feel and pull it out. And if you don't pull out the right one, you discard that card and get a new card. And the number of those ones that you successfully complete indicates how much sensor power you have. So everyone is doing something bonkers different every turn. And most of the stuff is done in real time. 
right? So like most of the phases are done in real time. There's a couple of phases where they're not in real time because you have to like do math and you have to move components around in a specific way. But a lot of the components are done, especially when you have enough players, when you have a full six, you do almost all the stuff in real time. Talking about this really makes me want to go back and play Space Cadets again. If I'm remembering correctly, the reason we haven't gotten this game to the table more is because it's got the vast problem of everybody's going to sit down and learn different rules, and that takes a lot of time. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, at certain points in the game, you'll just shift positions. Oh yeah, totally. Yep. <laughs> if you get a core breach, one of the things that can happen is everyone will move to your left, except for one person, and it's like, well, now I'm doing something totally different. Hooray! I have not trained for this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because you're also doing that in real time, it means the one person who probably knows the rules is having to reteach and getting confused and stop. So it's never quite been a fun game to actually play. It's stressful. It's a very stressful game. Kind of like Space Alert, which is thematically, if not mechanically similar. It's a game that really benefits from having the same group of people play it a number of times. Yeah, for sure. But I think Space Alert works because A, the roles are similar, but also because it breaks up the planning with the resolution. Mm -hmm. So where the resolution you actually do, you know, in slow time, whereas Space Cadets just does everything in the one period of chaos. And so you're having to really, all the rule density is in the real time stuff. Mm -hmm. That makes it hard. I like it though. It's a fun game. It's, It's definitely very chaotic. Anytime I've played it, you always feel, it's always frantic. Right, there's a frantic game, right? So like if you like mm-hmm. frantic games, or like I don't always like frantic games, but if I'm in the mood for a frantic game, it's a great example of a game that is frantic. You know, it's interesting because it occurred to me when you were describing it as a frantic game, I think that's why I don't enjoy it as much as I feel like I should. Yeah, no. It's kind of the same way with Magic Maze. I mean, I really appreciate <laughs> Magic Maze on a conceptual level. Yeah. I don't know that I can say I've ever actually enjoyed playing it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't disagree. Like, in a lot of ways, um, Space Alert kind of fired Space Cadets for me, right? Because, like, Space Alert has the same amount of franticness, but it is controlled franticness. Whereas Mm -hmm. in Space Cadets, every turn is frantic. In Space Alert, you have a frantic phase, and then you figure out what you you screwed up phase. In Space Cadets, it's like you do that, but shorter and a bunch of times. Yeah. It's It's, it's all frantic all the time. It's all frantic all the time because there's not just, like, one frantic and then we're done. It's frantic, resolve, frantic, resolve, frantic, resolve over and over and over again. So XCOM, the board game, uh, which was released in 2015, is the next game that we're going to talk about. And we've talked about this before in our electronics episode. I think this is a quintessential example of asymmetry at its best. You've got four players. The game can be played with less than four, but why? But you shouldn't. (laughs) Right. Each player has control of a different component of the XCOM facility, whether that is the science department, military operations, accounting, (laughs) accounting, (laughs) and just general command. Yeah, this is, I think, checks all of the boxes that we've talked about so far. Every player has different starting powers, has different components that they're operating with or working towards a similar goal. Yeah, it's almost like a cooperative version of Vast in that sense, because everybody is doing a completely different thing that interacts with all the other players. I think that's one of the most interesting parts about this as an asymmetrical game is like how interwoven each of those roles are. Just impressive. Yeah, it's, it's very well put together. So the next game we're talking about uh, is Vast the Crystal Cavern. It was released in 2016 by Leader Games, designed by Patrick Leader and David Somerville. And it is pretty much the defining asymmetric game. Everyone is doing something that is bonkers different every turn. 
honestly, if it's the first time you're playing the game, you kind of can't even follow what the other players are doing because, like, they're doing things. Um, recently, uh, I got the expansion that introduced some new factions. One of them is the uh, Unicorn. Nightmare Unicorn. And someone was playing the Nightmare Unicorn, and I was like, I have literally no idea what's going on because I've played all the base game factions like that one. Mm -hmm. Right, that's what it's like playing this game for the first time. That faction is doing something. What is it? I have literally no idea. At some point, it will have some impact on my life. Right. I think that person won. We're like, okay, great. <laughs> if you say so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they ran around and did a bunch of things. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. That's the thing that happened. Yeah, and that is that is kind of the blessing and the curse of Vast as far as I'm concerned because as a feat of game design, it is ridiculously impressive the, yeah. the way it all balances out. But I know, like, at least for me, the first time I played Vast, I was playing as the cave. Oh, oh, and geez. the cave's main job Harsh. is to make sure nobody else wins until the cave can win. And when you don't know what anybody else is trying to do, that's remarkably difficult. Yeah. Um, so when they went on and produced Root later, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, they made a lot of progress in making the, the things more mutually comprehensible, mm -hmm. but it was a little less asymmetrical as a result mm -hmm. because there is certainly a steep learning curve in figuring out what the hell's going on in a game of Vast. I would say the Vast is not a game for new board game players no. because it will frustrate. I mean, I know a vast sum of people who would just be frustrated trying to play that game. I see what you did there. I don't get the game to the board as often as I'd like just because a lot of times I want to teach it to new people. And then you pull out the manual and it's just a wall of text. You're like, here's your reference card wall of text. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, I haven't actually played this faction, but I think this is how they work. It is a very challenging game, but it's very rewarding. It is Once people start playing it, once they understand at least one of the factions, they always want to go back and play another faction. They're like, oh, this is really cool. I'd like to see what the other ones do. I said this earlier that Vast has this problem where like, hey, every time you sit down, until you play five times, more now with the expansion, you're sitting down to learn a new set of rules, which is time consuming and and they did make a really smart choice i think in including those player handouts that is just like oh yeah those pages are, of the rule book those are essential but yeah because of that everyone has to be like a person who can learn from a rule book and yeah that's a slimmer it's, yeah, that's my, not it's always my job to learn the yeah, rules. it's not everybody it's yeah. not everybody for sure i think it's another one of those games that benefits from repeated play with the same group it needs yep. to be deep i mean i would love to see a game of Vast played from with four or five people who have played a lot of Vast and all know how everything works. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be a categorically different game than sure. what we are muddling through at our, our level of experience. Well, like, and I'm thinking back through my experience, but I don't think I've ever played Vast without at least one new player. Mm -hmm. In my most recent playthrough of Vast, I had, we had a new player, I think he was playing the Goblins. So I'm just sitting here going, you have to do this. You have to. <laughs> Otherwise, that person is going to run away with the victory. And I find... Right. Otherwise, that, the night wins. Good job. <laughs> right. Like, I feel like that might be less fun, but I don't have a point to compare it to. Yeah. I mean, the, the game is balanced really well when everyone knows what everyone's trying to do. And it's going to take some incomplete and possibly unrewarding plays to get to that point. Yeah. Root is kind of the same way, but the curve is shorter. Well, so one thing that uh, I, Jason and I experienced, it was last year, I think, mm -hmm. um, is we got to play the follow-up to Vast, Vast the Haunted Mansion, with Patrick Leader. Um, he was at uh, PAX Unplugged and it was doing demos. And we're like, well, heck yeah, we want to do a demo. And there was no one there. So we did a demo. It was demo great. with the game creator of the yeah, game is not out yet? It was yes. pretty great. It was pretty great. So he was a super nice guy, too. He was. He, 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 he we, you know, we talked about, you know, our experiences with the past and, like, you know, they've taken a lot of that feedback and tried 
deliberately to simplify the the learning process. And I know they've tweaked the rule books a lot for the Haunted Manor in particular mm-hmm. to try and make that as easy as Interesting. possible. Interesting. Okay. I'm interested to see what, what, what comes me out too. of it. So. The really interesting thing to me is that they are apparently going to be cross-compatible, ah! which is like... <laughs> My brain explodes at that possibility. I mean, sure, I can't wait. I to guess be a you can't have both the cave the and the mansion because that seems weird. But uh, Patrick Leader clearly hates himself. That's all there is to it. He's an underappreciated genius, Frank. Pretty much, super nice guy. And it's also worth mentioning um, the guy who does all the art for Vest and Root, Kyle Farron. Also, a very nice guy. He's usually at all the conventions when they're demoing, and. I have tried repeatedly to get him to commit to making an art book because I would buy the hell out of that. Yeah, no, it is a really, really groovy art style. Brian, I've got it. The cave is under the house, so if the cave grows large <laughs> enough to collapse, the house, the house goes collapses down. on top. Yeah, but no. if the house collapses, it collapses into the cave, killing the cave. That's what I get. It, it fills the cave in. Right, it fills yeah. it in. Sure, there it's not a cave anymore. Okay, <laughs> we have a solution. But that's what the cave wants. The cave wants there to not be a cave anymore. That's its mm. goal. Its goal is to kill itself. Well, yeah. sure. That's so meta. <laughs> then the cave and the house can jump up and high five. I don't know. <laughs> Chronologically, the next one we had is one that actually I just sort of added to the list as part of our earlier conversations, which is Gloomhaven. And amazingly, we've gone through six and a half episodes now without really talking about Gloomhaven. I know, it's weird. Which is a shame because it is my favorite board game ever and is still, I think, number one on the Geek. Is, in fact, still number one on Board Game Geek as we record this. 2017 release by Isaac Childress from Cephalofair Games. And I could talk for hours about this game. It is, at its heart, there is a... uh, tactical dungeon combat thing going on. It's purely cooperative. There are a total of 17 different character classes which all play incredibly differently. You start with six of them available and you unlock more during the course of the legacy-style campaign. There's paragraph elements. There's branching storylines. It has everything I want in a game and is tremendous fun to play. But the relevant part here is just the way the character classes are all so very different. You start it with guys who are fairly simple. You have one guy who specializes in moving terrain and bad guys around. You have one that specializes in doing area effect damage. You have one that is good at resisting damage and so on. And then you get more and more complex characters going on where you have guys that put cards into play that remain in play and modify all of their future cards. There are characters that summon additional models that show up and fight for you. As the characters level up, they unlock additional unique cards that support their play style. I cannot say enough good things about this game. I love it, love it, love it. The one thing that makes me sad about having finished it is that I don't have any more character envelopes to unlock and see what other new stuff is coming. There's an expansion coming out in the fairly near future that has a new class and a bunch of uh, adventures. And supposedly there is a full-fledged sequel in the works, which I will be all over. Cool, I'll go be the sawbone in the expansion for a while. (laughs) That was your choice, man. Yeah, but he is ridiculously good. And was very good. Really? Okay. He is very powerful in enabling everyone else yeah, he's, to go he's, longer yeah. the best and longer character in the game I Got think. yes yeah easily. i don't know easily the, like, yeah there's well some there's discussion there's, on the internet there's the broken dude there's well, the we broken never played dude, the we actually opened the broken dude pretty late yeah, so it's our last envelope actually yeah. mm-hmm. but yeah it's enough that the game comes with each of those characters is in an envelope with a custom hidden miniature in a box mm-hmm. i mean you get an envelope with a board a set of cards yeah extra damage cards even 
the amount of damage you do and the way you do damage is different for each character. I mean, in all honesty, the thing that I love most about Gloomhaven is just that card mechanic. Like, that is such a fantastic way. If that was just a tactical game by itself of doing the cards, I would be all over it. But the fact that it's combined with the great branching storylines and everything else and the way you unlock stuff. And when you retire a character, there are new event cards that are in the deck that are unlocked because that character retired and he may show up later. Yeah, he's Love still it. hanging around in the world. Being very sad that he's not adventuring anymore. No, no, We're adventuring very is painful. Mm-hmm. All those slimes and fairies and shit? No, duh. So next up on the list uh, is another Kickstarter from the same people who brought us Vast. It's the, kind of their follow-up route. Um, it's released 2018 Letter Games, designed by Cole Whirl. At its core, it's, of course, an asymmetric game. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. Well, you say that. <laughs> That's true. We talked about plenty of other ones. But the, the core idea is you're, you're in a woodland kingdom that is recently, um, well, it, it has different factions in it. Uh, the current reigning power is the Marquis de Cat that has uh, recently come to power. He had asked, ousted the Airy, which is the bird people that had previously ruled the land. Then the other factions are the, uh, the Woodland Alliance, which is uh, basically the oppressed masses uh, slash terrorists. And the uh, Vagabonds. The lone of, wandering trash panda. But essentially, all of these different factions are trying to... They have their own goals, right? The, the Marquis Cat's trying to consolidate power by building um, sawmills and lumber lumber yards. Uh, the Airy is trying to reconquer their lost kingdom from the cats. The Woodland Alliance is trying to overthrow their oppressors. Um, and then the Vagabond is just kind of screwing around and selling arms to everybody else and hoping no one notices him until he wins the game. Right, he's just chilling. It's fine. The evolution of the way Vast works, all of these factions have their own abilities in the way that they work, but they also have some commonalities. Commonalities in the way that they move around the board, the commonalities in the way that they do combat. There's even a kind of a crafting mini game where they can create things to then give to the Vagabond to try and give him to give them cards to uh, to make themselves more powerful. And so in that case, I'd say it's probably easier to learn than Vast because you, at least you have some commonalities to work with to begin with. Yeah, I think it's easier to learn specifically because it's a little less asymmetrical. Yes. Because, you know, everybody kind of knows how movement works. Everybody knows how, uh, you know, crafting works because that's relevant to everybody. You know, in Vast, everybody's on a completely different plane, functionally. But in Vast, everybody's at least working with the same mechanics, even though their way of interacting with them is very different. I think the the deck also goes a long way in Root. Um, every player is drawing and operating from a shared deck, but every player uses that deck in a different way, kind of. Uh, no, no. Every player uses the deck in a different way because, mm-hmm. you know, the Woodland Alliance is basically just taking the deck as supporters, which is their whole goal is to build up their supporter pool. Right. The Airy is basically committing those into their weird programming yep. thing. <laughs> and the cat fail. really doesn't care much about the deck because he gets three actions a turn and does whatever he wants. He still uses the deck for crafting or the occasional perk. Mm-hmm. Well, and both the Airy and the Cats can build things off the the cards to then give to the Vagabond. So, like... Well, more accurately, they're going to take when giving a card. Right. But, like, I think having that shared resource goes a long way towards giving everybody at least a sense of shared rules. Sure. Unlike Vast, where everybody is totally separate, they shall not cross. Yeah. The other thing is, it's Root is also asymmetrical in the diplomacy sense, in that the cats begin controlling 90% of the board, and the Vagabond is literally one dude. 
So the balance is certainly there. So there may be a lot of sort of common ground in the early going to try and drive the cats back a little bit because they are perceived as having a stronger starting position. But that also doesn't directly relate to their win conditions. So it's there's a lot going on. The cats are like spread out, but they're everywhere. The birds are in a single spot, but there's a bunch of them Mm -hmm. in that spot. The Whittle Alliance doesn't even start on the board. Right? (laughs) Yeah. If you listen to our end of year wrap up, you'll know that we're all really big fans of this game and uh, think it's doing cool stuff. I have not played any of the expansion material for Root. I know there's some new factions. There's like a River cult or, or something. Yeah. So the river folk are like traders that are mostly producing items and cards that can then be sold to other people for whatever cost they set. Do they replace another faction? And... Or go to five. Yeah, it's kind of whatever you want to Oh, that's kind of cool, actually. And the lizard cult basically sacrifices their members for power. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played with those. Sounds real cool. Looking at that, it was like reading almost a vast kind of reading alien thing where they're playing a different game. Yeah, I'd say in, in terms of presentation-wise, uh, one of the things they included were little reference cards for all of the factions so that you, when you're playing against other people, you can look at these cards and go, oh, this is that faction's goal. Here's how you stop them. Yeah, it's got sort of a custom, here's some information, which I feel like is something that we'll probably see Vast Mansion, you know, oh, Haunted yeah. Mansion, nice. because it that's a really good idea and something that the original Vast was conspicuously lacking. Actually, the other awesome thing was there's a two-turn tutorial where basically it walks you through your first turn. You know, do this, then do this, and do this. And it walks you through each of the mechanics that you're, that you're basically a faction can do. Uh, to teach you the game because you know you're the common grounds kind of lacking mm-hmm. and i'm hoping uh, mysterious mansion goes that way i would not be surprised if they did the last one we have on the list is visitor in blackwood grove so yeah this is 2018 resonem designers mary flanagan and max sideman and so when you look at this game, it's really descended, well, thematically, there's a kid and an alien and a bunch of men in black. And basically the kid and the alien are trying to team up. And it's really descended from Zendo, Ulysses, uh, those kind of games where the alien creates a rule that determines which objects can pass through the force field. There's a bunch of sample cards in. It might be, you know, smaller than a bread box. It includes organic components or something. And really, that's all the alien's doing is answering questions. The agents are basically trying to figure out figure out the rules for the force field because they can then kill the alien, kidnap him, drag him off to Area 51, whatever men in black normally do. The weird thing is the the men in black and the various government agencies are all working for themselves. The kid and the alien are working together. Uh, men in black basically do their tests face down with a big deck of pictured object cards, and the alien hands them back a yes-no. The kid plays face up, and the kid has a completely different track where he gets powers as he does better. He and the alien get closer, and he gets more cards, more guesses, and such. Does the ch- the person who's playing the child know what the alien's rule is at the beginning of the game? No. Okay. So they're trying to figure it out as well. Without giving away too much information to, to the, the government. And so it's an incentive okay. for the alien to create a rule that's Solvable. hard, but not too hard. Right. Because, you know, if it goes on too long, the basically they'll lose. And that's the core of the game. It, because it takes the structure of an existing game and then adds an asymmetric component to it by adding the kid. Really, otherwise, it's a kind of a, well, activity where, you know, one of the agents wins, the alien's not really playing. 
Tell us your final thoughts, Mike. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, like, just in talking here today, I think my kind of final thoughts for what is and is not a asymmetrical game really comes down to just a couple of traits that they exhibit. And that's going to be like, hey, asymmetrical games usually have, in a competitive sense, two factions or more at conflict with each other with unique actions to achieve goals. Each player has unique and independent resources, although I guess not always independent now that I'm thinking of things like Root, and that they have at least two of unique starting player powers, victory conditions, or starting positions. Mike, I'm going to need you to draw up a Venn diagram of this that yeah, we no, can scan like, and put I'm in the show notes. Thinking there's definitely got to be like some sort of chart of like, hey, which one of these will make a asymmetrical game? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This is this is overall a weird episode because it's like we started the episode without a real clear idea of what we were going into. And I'm not sure how much we've clarified it. For me, I feel like the the sort of gut check for me is I feel like if the players are doing different things or things that feel different enough, I'm going to call that an asymmetrical game. I think Vast is in a class by itself just because it is asymmetrical along pretty much every axis that we have defined. It's strictly competitive and yet it all works somehow. In terms of players doing things that feel different, I think as far as favorites go, I still have to give it to Gloomhaven because I just love that game on all counts. But I think it's an interesting sort of road to wander down. I think it's maybe a little bit farther afield from our, our original stated purpose for the podcast and looking at the evolution of stuff. But I still think it's interesting and I'm glad we had these conversations. Yeah, I'm um, firmly on the fence with the idea that the that basically your experience is the only thing that matters. Once you try to slice it and d dissect how what causes that experience you start getting into the pain of oh wait is this asymmetric or not and so it is going to be a case where you just have to know it when you see it as is the, the game i hold up to great and glorious of uh, idolatry uh would be dune because that game is so different depending on which faction and yet the game is so simple uh really there's you know six pages of rules maybe and something that you don't see in games now Joe? I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the meat coma has struck. No, no, like the, um, yeah, I think trying to like define exactly what is an asymmetric game is like, it's, it's some of a couple of different columns. And if it has enough of one column of any of the three columns, it's probably an asymmetric game. So it's like, I think it's hard to, to get a, Ooh, we can get an asymmetry game. scorecard going yes. on and rate yeah. various yes. games. Yes. On yes. It. You need an asymmetry scorecard. I, I really like Root. I think it's a, I think it's a really great game. I think it's of the games we talked about today. Like I love Gloomhaven. Don't get me wrong, but like Root is more approachable than Gloomhaven for sure. So yeah, I'd say. I mean, in terms of our discussion today, it certainly opened up what I would consider asymmetric games. Before my definition was strictly people had different capabilities and they specifically had separate win conditions, not wholly separate. Maybe they had the same win condition and an exception like Dune, right? Where if nobody else wins, you do, or if you guess the person who wins, you win instead. But I'd say during the course of our discussion, I've probably changed my mind on that a little bit. Probably not quite as broad a definition as some of the games we were talking about, but it's opened up some. Uh, in terms of favorite, maybe just because it's most, most recent, maybe because I've been playing it a lot, uh, Root is definitely up there for me. Of all the games that I've played on our list, I like all of them. But Root, I think what I really find fascinating is the balance of power between the different factions. I love the fact that there's the constant... 
okay, what do I need to do to keep them in check? Has anyone attacked the Vagavon recently? I like I like that being aware of what your opponents are doing, trying to keep things in balance, knowing that you have specific roles to perform. And I love seeing how that breaks down. And I also love watching new players when that dawns on them. <laughs> Usually it's about the, the point where someone's at a 10-point lead. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I was supposed to stop them. Yeah. Yes, yes, you were. <laughs> well, if nothing else, I feel like we've all learned something today. As listeners... Do you find this interesting or has this all been an enormous waste of time? More so, let us know what you think. Like, go to Facebook and, like, define asymmetry for us. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Please don't. Let, <laughs> let's crowdsource. Define art. <laughs> let's crowdsource a definition Oh, good here. Lord. If there's anything that the internet is capable of. It's, it's... telling us we're wrong. Yes. Yes. Sure. Yeah. And arguing over things. Oh, Ooh, totally. oh yeah. yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's it for this episode. See, this is the start of February. We will maybe be able to come back for a special bonus episode at some point this month. Ooh, watch your watch your emails or other social media feeds. And um, if nothing else, we'll see you guys next month. Well, we won't see you and you won't see us. We'll talk at you next month and hopefully you'll still be listening. So please come check out our website, which is ascentofboardgames.com or you can email us at ascentofboardgames at gmail.com. Our Facebook account, because Facebook is weird, is facebook.com slash group slash Ascent Board Games. They don't like the word of in there, apparently. Twitter is Ascent of Games. Uh, apparently, Ascent of Board Games is too long for a Twitter username. We try to be consistent, but the internet won't let us. Discord, though, is discord.ascentofboardgames.com, or you can find us on Instagram, which we don't have much on yet, but we're working on it, at instagram.com slash ascentofboardgames. Those are long and inconsistent and a pain to transcribe, so your best bet is probably just to go to our website, which, once again, is ascentofboardgames.com, and just click on the links there. We've got a poll for what we should do for our next episodes. We've got information on us. You can even see pictures of us and recognize that we all have great faces for podcasting. And um, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I've been playing Century Old Spice with my... Century Spice Road. Sure. It's not a deodorant. Look away from your audio player. Now look back. Now look away. Now look back. It's that thing you wanted. I have a board game.